You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 235 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode we are going to look at sex addiction with author and clinical psychologist Dr. Ryan Westrom, PhD. He has recently published the book The Psychedelics Integration Handbook. As mentioned we discuss sex addiction but also parenting and sex as well as psychedelic parenting. Something I find interesting as it is relevant to me personally. So uh, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm very grateful. So can you tell the listeners a bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, definitely. Um, my name is Dr. Ryan Westrom. I'm a clinical psychologist in the Twin Cities of Minnesota. I specialize in sexuality and integration of psychedelics. I recently just authored a book called The Psychedelic Integration Handbook as a guide for both recreational use as well as therapeutic uh, studies in the realms of psychedelics. And um, I specifically focus on the intersection of sexuality and psychedelic integration. So how would you do... uh that I mean how does uh, sexual integra- sexuality and integration with psychedelics go hand in hand that's a really good question that seems to be one of the reasons why many clients come my direction and I believe the intersection lies within authenticity I think both sexuality and the identity now in our culture as well as the new renaissance of psychedelic work uh, lies within who and where you find your authenticity, both in sexual identity or healing potential traumas or spiritual growth with psychedelics. And so that intersection or fulcrum uh, works out quite uh, magically. So when I've uh, been in psychedelic rituals or ceremonies, because I've read about uh, the hippies and that, and they were having a lot of sex and orgies while they were doing psychedelics but my experience using psychedelics is that it that would be uh, very difficult yeah and i would agree with you and i, I want to make it predominantly clear for your listeners that what i'm not doing is advocating for sex and psychedelic work together however what i'm finding is a, a peripheral connection be it sexual healing maybe they had sexual trauma maybe they've had sexual abuse and or they carry a sexual addiction and what's manifested in the psychedelic work and the integration that I'm doing is I'm finding there's a real clear understanding of their sexual needs potentially and or their sexual history in psychedelic work it's a supportive mechanism for healing I would never um, never kind of instruct like you said the the 60s or the the hedonistic era of sex and rock and roll or sex drugs and rock and roll it's i think uh, psychedelics there's a paramount to making sure we're we're consensual does that make sense so um uh, when it comes to people that are addicted to sex uh, is it that they're addicted to what it feels like or is it something else they're actually trying to um you know push away by 
sex with sex? I think the catch-22 of sexuality and authenticity and then drawn to, I, the identification of porn addiction really resonates when you start talking about if you're running away or pushing against something you might not want to look at. And so with sex addiction and or pornography addiction, the, the issue lies in they might not be facing something they need to look at, right? They might not be really looking at their concerns. And ultimately, I've seen psychedelics being an amazing gateway for them to see where their healing lies as it relates to sexual addiction or what their potential draw to that behavior is. Do you think that sexual or addiction to sex has increased because of the porn industry with the internet and everything? You know, honestly, that's a really touchy kind of conversation. I do believe that there is a there's a value um, in sex positive expression such as pornography and certain elements of pornography could be seen as sex positive. However, in the idea of sexual addiction and sexual traumas, I have seen an increase in people I've seen finding it um, kind of a conditioned response that they're ethically challenged by because of the pornography, maybe because of the graphic nature of it or because of the escalation of volume that they're ingesting pornography in. And at the end of the day, that's what becomes a trouble factor for them. That's what becomes an issue for them is the volume and or the manifestation of too much violence or too much aggression, or potentially it brought them uh, away from their daily living skills. So if you compare somebody who, who is addicted to alcohol and they almost ruin their life from drinking, uh, could somebody that has a sex addiction go down the same route uh, or is it like an easier addiction or is it can it be even worse that I, how i describe it alex and that's a very great point is anyone's addiction is individual to them so i never want to like position it as worse or better than or easier to get off of say compared to heroin or methamphetamines but sexual addiction you know because of the advent of pornography being free nowadays and the fact that it's accessible at everyone's fingertips via cellular phones or computers i think that makes it difficult that makes it harder i'm not saying it's worse than heroin or alcohol but what i would say is the accessibility of pornographies makes it that much more difficult to remove because our culture i i, I would call it very hypersexual and so Then we have to see what's going on with that. What is the person? Are they losing their job? Are they doing it at work? Are they taking away from their intimate relationship with their loved one? My experience having lived in the United States many years ago was that compared to Europe, it's way more prude. I wonder if that, that leads to more or less addiction to sex. Yeah, you know, that's a really um, nuanced experience. And I would agree with you that I think we are very repressed culturally. Um, I, I had the benefit to live in Europe myself, both in Sweden and in um, Switzerland. And I found the liberal way of approaching sexuality then demystified it. It didn't make it such a big deal. There wasn't such a big deal or there wasn't so much tied into 
being sexual or intimate for that matter. Because I, I found that it was very easy to get hold of uh, like snuff films and violent material in the video rental place. Like you could watch, I remember I was renting these, they were called Faces of Death and it was like uh, movies of people who who died in accidents. You know, I was only 16 at the time. But uh, those were nev would never have been allowed here in Europe. Right, so then that, that, that brings up the point of what I like to say is do they understand or can they even appreciate and articulate what it is, right? And especially children now, that's the tragedy that we see now, Alex, is there's a lot of younger kids that don't know how to interpret what they're even witnessing. So they don't even know what they're digesting. And by the time they start to develop a relationship with it, they have a different context of sexuality altogether. There's no intimacy. There's no understanding of what it really is. They're so desensitized for that matter. So in, in so how can psychedelics help with somebody who, who is suffering from sex addiction? Is it in the same way that it helps people who are addicted to other things, or does it work differently? I'm, I, I find it very similar. I think there's many comparisons of any addiction um, recently. There was an individual that had a long history of sexual compulsion that shared their story and in the proverbial ayahuasca ceremony where they met grandmother and grandmother instructed them and showed them the destruction of sexuality, right? They showed them what sexuality was taking away from their life. I think there's a lot of nuances in psychedelics that can manifest depending on what people's intentions are, right? Do they want to look at their sexual life or do they want to connect to more of a healing relationship? Does that make sense? Because at the end of the day, it's really what the person's bringing for their intention, right? Do they want to look at their relationship or do they want to look at their compulsion or addiction to sexuality? So what are your own experiences? Have you uh, tried psychedelics yourself? Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, I'm a very um, strong advocate for psychedelics, and I'm very transparent. I started using psychedelics when I was early in my teenage years. I was grateful that I had older allies and guides in my life. I work predominantly with psilocybin, LSD, and MDMA. And I had the privilege and luxury to um, have guides and allies that supported me in the appropriate ingestion of it. So. I find significant value in the healing mechanisms. And I'm also, I, I, I'm not to shy away from the advocacies of safe set and setting in a recreational manner, because right now in the United States, over 30 million people a year are using it. So it's not like it's not a topic. We have to look at it in a harm reduction manner. You're in Minnesota, and isn't that uh, more uh, strict when it comes to psychedelics compared to other states like California or Colorado? Yeah, that would be correct. I think, um, you know, right now what I'm speaking about is the educational component, right? No different uh, than a dirty needle exchange regarding heroin. Um, they're doing it. People are using them. So the reason why I stand as an integration therapist or have written the book in the Psychedelic Integration Handbook is I want people to know that they are using it, people are being um, you know, exploratory with it, and they need to know how to use it and what the appropriate settings are and the appropriate environments are. I, I think no different if we're in Minnesota, California, Denver, Oakland, 
you know, Boston. It's, it's irrelevant. You have to learn how to use it appropriately because people are going to be doing it. They're curious. So this book you, you've written, uh, what's it about? Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, thank you. The book is called The Psychedelics Integration Handbook. And what it is is it's a guidebook, and it's broken into 12 chapters, and it proceeds through three different ways. We give an example of historical ramifications of psychedelics, the cultural nuances of psychedelics, but then what I do is I turn it to you, and I call it a now your turn section, where you're invited into journaling about what the draw of your psychedelic work is, what maybe an experience you had with psychedelics is. And then I offer 12 different uh, exercises that advocate for healthy integration of psychedelics. And they range from basic meditation to complex art projects, to things that each individual is drawn to. The concept of the book is to make it your own. I really attempt, the book is a plain white cover. I want people to make their psychedelic integration their own and really learn to personalize what it is to psychedelic work and integrate together. So I imagine one big challenge if you have a, a very profound psychedelic experiences if you live in a culture where you can't really talk about it. Yeah, that, that can be a conundrum. And how I really, and I'm really privileged and grateful that you, you've asked me on your podcast is um, I've had the privilege of having mentors such as Stanislav Grof and James Fadiman, who both endorsed the book, um, really kind of guide me in the way to work with psychedelics, right? So it's not necessarily advocating and saying, hey, we're going to use them all the time. But there's other modalities, such as Stanislav Graf's holotropic breathwork, or any version of breathwork for that matter. You have an opportunity to still have what's called non-ordinary states of consciousness in the repressed culture, right? In a culture that it's not easy to talk about. We're still able to talk about theoretically, educationally, and practically the value of these uh, medicines. I mean, like, because in some cultures you can't even tell somebody you did it because they might think you're mad. Yeah, and y when I hear you say that, I leave you with a story, and it's the difference between a psychotic and an enlightened individual. And I believe, just like you said, it's who you choose to share your story with. So the difference between someone that could be perceived as psychotic versus someone that could be perceived as enlightened is simply who you're choosing to tell that story to. And I would agree with you. Maybe I go in down the road and talk to someone about my advocacy of psychedelics and they might think I'm, you know, not too not too sturdy or not too uh, frame of reference as sane, but I, I believe that this work is important to talk about. So if you have like a patient that's uh that's addicted to sex, do you like advise them to use psychedelics or do you have ceremonies yourself? How does it work? No, that's a good, um, good directive question. And at the end of the day, um, what I do is I really encourage education. I encourage what their purpose is. I talk a lot about their purpose of why they're drawn to psychedelics as a healing modality for sexual addiction. The second thing is, is I want to reflect on what their experience is. Similar to you asking me about my personal experience, I want to make sure people have had experiences. I do not do direct ceremonies, nor do I um, 
you know, hold space directly for clientele. I simply work with the integrative process, the framework of the psyche, the understanding of the purpose moving forward. A lot of people coming into my office, they're drawn to this because of the advent of this new renaissance, but they're not sure why. And so a lot of what I'm doing is helping them work through it. And because of my long history with my own personal exploration of psychedelics and my relationship with different communities, I help them see if it fits, if that's their fit, right? If that, if it works for them, comparative to cognitive behavioral therapy or any other kind of treatment. Even though uh, America might be more prude than Europe, the whole modern world, I imagine, is more prude than the past. I mean, like the Romans, they they had. Uh, uh, both men and women, you know, they weren't not. They were. They didn't even consider themselves homosexuals. They were just like, there's nothing, you know. You make love with your friend and you make babies with your wife. And then even before that, uh, with uh, ancient cultures, uh, there's many reports about them living in more of an orgiastic kind of society. So, uh, I guess the whole modern world is more when it comes to sex than the past yeah no and I would agree with you and like what I like to say in regards to that is I I use the metaphor of a knife right to take the sexuality out of it and I talk to people a lot about it because I work with um, metaphors quite a bit and I say the label of a knife is the label of a knife similar to sexuality it's the assigned meaning you give it a knife could be used as a murder weapon at the same time, a knife could be used to create a delicate, amazing meal. So it's the individual's assigned meaning that they give sexuality that I think is the biggest issue. That's where people get blocked the most, is they're either grown up with context that says sex is bad, sex is wrong, or they grow up with the context that sex can be healthy and used as exploratory. Right? It's no different than polyamory relationships or monogamous relationships. It's people have projected thoughts around them. Is it common that people that are addicted to sex have been abused sexually? You know, I, I can't say it's common, but I have seen quite a bit of that. And what that abuse comes from is, you know, it can be fam familial, it can be, you know, directed when they were younger and then what we have to do is we have to look at what they're seeking what they're looking to 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 really understand because at the end of the day trauma is not going to go away that's the one concern i bring up to people as they work with psychedelics in sexuality is this trauma is never going to go away it's not a magic pill but what it can do is it can give you a perspective to see it differently right you'll be able to see um, the nuance of the sexual abuse and maybe have a better understanding of what the issue was or what the concern was. But I don't see uh, a direct relationship that uh, sexual abuse and sexual addiction are, you know, commingled all, all the time. Do you only have like male patients or do female patients feel comfortable talking about this with a male? Yeah, I do have female patients and honestly, a lot of my female patients and their, their issues are trying to understand to be and hold space for authenticity of their sexuality. 
you know, they might have sexual abuse. They could potentially have um, been sexually exploited, or they might also have sexual addiction or pornography addiction. Pornography addiction and sex addiction is not um, secluded or isolated to males. So a lot of the women that come in, it is beneficial to have that gender um, difference. I, I actually find quite a value in working with um, clients that have a unique uh, gender identity, such as trans, uh, maybe they identify as heterosexual or asexual. So the gamut, the spectrum, Alex, is broad. It's not just isolated to both identifying as gender female or gender male. Um, my clientele ranges um, from the likes of trans to asexual to cyst to, you know, identifying as hetero or bisexual. It's, it's quite uh, broad. Sex is such an, uh, well, for if, if, uh, if people have a fairly normal life, I mean, sex is like an important uh, part of your life. But when... I always thought that like people, doctors who are gynecologists maybe, or people like you who help people that have uh, sex addiction, when you privately engage in sex, does that ruin it? Like, cause it's like you talk about it so much that so when you're doing it yourself, you might be thinking about work. Like, does it spill over? I don't believe so. I um, I think it, 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 and not to use sexuality and porn, um, pornography or uh, psychedelics overkill here, but I think it's shutting it off. Having the capability for me to shut it off when I go home is super, super important. Self-care through psychedelic work or any other non-ordinary states of work has kept what I call my, my slate clean. So I'm able to meet my partner with you know, mindfulness and presence, and I'm not thinking about all People have asked me that before. Do I carry a lot of the stories because I hear a lot, right? So it, it, it's not the case personally. I can't speak for everybody. But I think self-care and, you know, your own work, I think it's important as a as a psychologist to do your own work to keep your slate clean um, so you're not carrying over or projecting your stuff into your personal life. Do you think there will be a change in the uh, educational system regarding... Uh, sexual education because it, I still feel it's a bit uh, like 1800s. Yeah, very archaic, is it not? I hope so. I hope so. I think um, speaking to children about it is so important. And I alluded to it a little earlier is some of my youngest clients are 10, 11, 12 years old. And what I like to say is they're amazing at observing but they're awful at interpreting. So what we need to do in the educational system is as, adult, as adults have the courage, one, to be imperfect and know that we're not gonna be able to tell them everything right. And secondly, we need to give them information so they know what they're actually seeing because the advent of the internet has given them you know, freedom to type in and explore anything they want, right? And that, that can be a, a big problem because they don't know what they're actually doing. So educationally, I do find it important to have the courage to talk about it. What's the average age when children become sexually active? Maybe not even physically, but mentally. Yeah, well, what I'm noticing, um, 
and this is just again from my own vantage point and from my research, that clients and kids are starting to become curious and not to bring in Freud, but they're easily becoming curious at nine and 10. So if I was talking to parents in a workshop, I like to tell them that they should be having the conversation two years before they start witnessing things. Unfortunately, they don't know when that is. And I like to say, it's easy to have the dialogue at eight years old about what sex is. I mean, I'm not talking about the details. I'm not talking about the graphic nature of what sex is. I'm just talking about the fact that that's what's happening to their bodies. I'm witnessing eight to 10 year old young individuals becoming sexual or sexualized. And they don't, they don't know what those feelings are. So my invitation, Alex, is to teach the parents to start teaching your children about their body, not sex, but start teaching them about what those feelings are, right? To start understanding what feelings are like. And if you can start teaching emotional feelings to your children at that age, then they'll at least have some sort of understanding when they start to become overly sexual or inundated by sex on the internet or television. Yeah, so how do you how do you do it with your children when you want to inform them about this stuff? So I personally have two children, one that's three and one that's 14. And the conversations that I'm having are just direct because I see what they're interested in. And the difference between a 14-year-old and a three-year-old is very drastic, so I'll give both perspectives. With the three-year-old, I'm introducing her to her body. I'm letting her know that she's getting excited or that she's interested in something such as a toy. And so I'm asking her what the feelings like to be in her body. What's it like to like that toy? What's it like to be close to your teddy bear? So then they're starting to put two and two together and they're developing emotional intelligence related to their physical body, which I think is super important for healthy sexuality. You need to be able to tie your physical body in with your emotional mind. With a 14-year-old or anyone between 10 and 14, it changes quickly. And so you just have to be on your toes to be able to have the courage to talk about what they're bringing up. Because full disclosure, the kids are going to have more information than you even know. They're going to be telling you things that they already knew. And the biggest tragedy right now is the sexting. So with the teenagers, you have to be mindful of the sexting back and forth and not recognizing that they're, you know, they're in charge of their bodies. And again, Alex, you go back to teaching them to be advocates for their bodies. So I, I have a three-year-old daughter. So what is your advice then if I want to make sure she doesn't think that uh, she needs to use her body to get... I'm assuming she's straight then, of course, but uh, to get uh, boys to respect her. I think um, the, the introduction, Alex, is consent, teaching them that they're in control of their body and it's empowering. I think children are like cactuses in the desert. There's never enough validation you could give a three-year-old little boy or little girl. And it's important to let them know that this is what I would call peripheral education around sexuality. 
is teaching them empowerment and advocacy for who they are. And it's not what they're showing or what they're doing or what they're behaving like, but it's who they are internally, right? Teaching them an internal compass of emotional awareness and what's going on with their physical consent of what they allow people to do. So if she doesn't want to hug grandpa or grandma, you have to give her permission to say, I'm not interested that day to hug. Or if she wants to hug, inquire what, what she's comfortable with, right? Give her the ability to make her own boundaries. I think sexuality and boundaries is super, um, it, it's been ignored in our culture and in our society. And I think if you can tie both boundaries and sexuality together, that is super beneficial for younger children. Yeah, she she very recently noticed that uh, her father and her mother looks different differently uh, uh, when you're naked, you know. Uh, but I haven't really explained it yet. <laughs> no. Yeah, and and what's what 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 I think again is it's the catch that the parents aren't ready or they're afraid to say something wrong, and that's where I invite parents to really follow their intuition. And so do you see how this kind of falls back into the world of psychedelics is with people that understand psychedelics or non-ordinary states of consciousness, they become stronger within their internal compass. They understand what they feel safe and comfortable doing. You know, at the end of the day, we are different people. Their mom and dad is different. And to lie to them or ignore it could only make them more confused. I was a bit nervous that I did a mistake because when <laughs> the first time she noticed it she got, like she pointed and, and said like what's that on me you know like between my legs she pointed and when she did that uh, i kind of i laughed like as a reaction like i wasn't expecting it so I, for days after that she like tried to do you know even if i had clothes on you know like pointing there because she thought it would make me laugh but so i I thought, oh no, now I've made her think that you should do that. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, so easy to like confuse them. What did you? Uh, what What did she do now? Is she fine, or has she forgotten? We have to remember children's early recollections and memories are really established between the ages of, you know, three to seven. So you know that you have plenty of time to to keep introducing new ideas. No, I I think I just said no. That, that's that is you don't don't touch that but then i thought well then maybe i'm imprinting on her mind that it's a bad thing i mean like it's very confusing what to say you know no i know i know and that's where it becomes a conundrum uh, of people confused and more confused because they're afraid that they're going to screw their child up no matter what they do or no matter what they say right if they neglect the conversation then they feel like they're bad if they talk too much about it they feel like they're over-sexualizing the child. And so it's, again, going back to the comfort level of each individual household, it, what, what they feel safe with, and, and, and going at it at a certain integrated pace. I talk about incremental. I say you have to go at it very, very baby steps. Don't, don't dump it all at one time. So uh, what are your plans for the future? Are you going to write more books or what's in store my hope is um right now i'm i'm advocating for integration um at this moment in time i'm advocating for integration of psychedelic work and non-ordinary state work because i want people to be able to walk with this 
in our culture, it's so, so popular. And I want people to be able to use it appropriately so they can actually walk with it in real life. So we're not walking around like, oh, how do you integrate psychedelically and then not pay attention to your life? I want to learn how and teach people how to participate in their life with what I call a psychedelic lifestyle, right? Where they're learning what they learned in their experiences and walking with it in their real life. Um, daily workshops, I do workshops, I do um, advocacy for open sexuality, po sex positive work. My hope is maybe to turn um, information towards intention, teaching people how to do appropriate psychedelic intention following up this book. Um, at, the, at the interim, I'm, I'm just enjoying being able to talk about it with clients and working with people individually and in groups. Time will tell. So if you have two parents that are using psychedelics or they did use it and it, they benefited from it but maybe not using it anymore but in any case they might like think it's such a good thing that they want to uh, explain it to their children and you know maybe but you don't want to tell them to do it when they become older of course but uh, how would you go about uh, doing that like uh, informing your children about psychedelics because that could also go wrong if you do it the wrong way it could go tragically wrong if you do it the wrong way or if you advocate for it in endorsing it or glamorizing it. Um, I do a little group called Psychedelic Parenting, and I invite parents that are advocates of psychedelic use and have younger children or teenagers, for that matter. The teenagers are the ones that you have to be careful with. But what we talk a lot about in the group is the idea of introducing concepts, characteristics, and behaviors that the psychedelics have taught them as parents, right? Maybe it's a certain educational style. Maybe it's an advocacy for authenticity to be oneself. So we're not doing it directly by talking about the psychedelic medicines or drugs. What we do is we're talking about the characteristics that we learn through this lifestyle. Does that make sense? Yeah, and uh, when they're like, would have you met psychedelic parents that like when the child is maybe 18 or 20 or wh whatever age that they've done it with them yes i've seen that and sometimes it's worked out really well and sometimes it's been um, very tragic because there's too much enmeshment i discourage um the 18 year old because they're still formulating their brain to work with their parents i'm not discouraging 18 year olds to go explore the the psychedelic world what i'm saying is if you're doing a journey or a trip with your parents what could be exacerbated or challenged is potential trauma from their childhood that was at the hands of their parents or their parents might you know not feel good enough so when we're talking about the ages of 18 to 21 I would walk with very, very, very gentle steps not to do things jointly too often. It, it's not to say you can't talk about it in, in person with your, your, your child at that age. I think they're educated and mature enough to, but you have to be careful exploring with them together. I think that that's very precarious. I think that would be walking into a, a lion's den, in my opinion. What about facilitating like you're the sitter? Yeah, um, I could see that as value. My only concern, and, and I have seen this in personal experience, 
from a therapist's vantage point. My only concern is if the person, the child, sat up with a recognition or a realization that their mother or father did something to them. So there was an aha moment that they realized that their mother or father did something, and here the sitter as the mother is there or the father's there. My advocacy would be to have a third party that's neutral, holding space for these individuals. Honestly, I, I would see it more valuable to have both the child and the parent under the experience and a third party that's neutral facilitating it. But, you know, everybody has their own unique way of going about it, so I don't want to discourage anyone's ideas. Maybe the child should be the seater because... <laughs> yeah, who knows? I mean, I mean, we're flushing all of this out as we speak, right? The, at the end of the day, I think the, the, there's a nuance of... It's like having your first beer with your father or mother. You know, you want the, the parent wants to be there to kind of facilitate it, but at the end of the day, they don't want, the kid doesn't want to sit there and like in, in, hang out with mom and dad the whole time either. You know, so it, it, it comes and goes in different perspectives. Well, um, uh, do you have a website and where can people find your book? Yeah, thank you very much. Um, my website is psychedelicintegration.net. I also have a website called Healing Souls, S O U L S L L C dot com. Psychedelicintegration.net is where you can find the work and the education as well as the book. The book is online. It will soon be on Amazon in the next week uh, under the title The Psychedelic Integration Handbook. And my Healing Souls website is devoted to sexuality. So I have two websites going, uh, both the Psychedelic Integration website and then the Healing Soul Sexuality website that you could find me on, and I'd be more than happy to talk to anybody um, via digital therapy or integration therapy. Okay. Thank you a lot for taking the time to be on the podcast. Yeah, Alex, thank you so much. I'm very grateful, and I appreciate the time as well. Have a good day. Check out his websites HealingSoulsLLC.com and PsychedelicIntegration.net Imagine a USB out of wood with a DMT molecule engraved on both sides. 32 gigabyte containing the first 200 episodes of the podcast. And hours upon hours upon hours of additional material previously only available to patrons. If you want to get your grubby little hands on this, then go to naturalbornalchemist.com, check out the merchandise page and buy the USB 200. Support the podcast. Get the USB. Now we're going to listen to the song Signs on Every Doorstep by Lars Eriksson from the album Dictions and Contradictions. If you like the music, go to soundcloud.com forward slash Larus, L-A-R-U-S. Um, and all the links I mentioned will be available in the program notes and on nationalalchemist.com. And please don't forget to like the podcast in social media and join us over at Patreon if you really want to support the podcast. That would be appreciated. 
Next week, we are going to focus on the people of the rainforest. Take it easy and be careful with that internet poor. Freedom is in the mind. Sounds on every the road is a constant toll Pain is in the idol learning hell And rain is like milk from some heavenly cow I know is what I need to observe the unheard.